0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Depending on who's talking, Freak Nick was a notorious public safety hazard or an annual love fest that solidified Atlanta status as America's black mecca. You've been to Daytona, you've been to Fort Lauderdale, you've been to Panama City, you've been to Cancun, you've been to Montego Bay. But when you take away the
1: sand, when you take away the water, and you put all those people on the blacktop, in the black mecca, you get the black college spring break. Welcome to Atlanta, Hot 97.5, the station where hip-hop lives, it's Freak
0: What started in the 80s as a spring break event for historically black colleges and universities became a social phenomenon by the early 90s, with people from across the country flooding to Atlanta, widespread partying, gridlock traffic and pop-up music shows overtaking the city for a weekend each year. In 2010, former Mayor Kasim Reed declared there would not be a Freaknik takeover of Atlanta under his watch, effectively banning the event. Documentary filmmaker Chris Frierson is creator and host of Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. The podcast explores the rise and fall of Freaknik. Welcome Chris.
1: Hey, how's it going? I'm
0: um, just fine. What a podcast you've done. It's really something. And at the time of the original Freaknik, you were just a kid living in suburban Michigan. How would you come to hear about it?
1: Naturally as as a lot of um black kids, we have roots in the south and um my aunt and uncle, who grew up, um, my aunt grew up in Detroit, and then ended up moving back to Atlanta um, and raising a family there. So I had cousins down there that I would visit every summer, and it was always in the summer. You know, obviously, Freaknik was yeah, pre-summer, so when I would get down there, it was post-Freaknik every year, and they would sort of regale stories and tales of this wild thing that I had no sort of semblance of what it possibly was or could be.
0: Well, some of my younger colleagues didn't know the term Freaknik, and it may be new to some listeners. You tried to pin down its origins, rolling back to 1982, spoke with a woman named Sharon Tumer, who co-created one of the first Freaknik events. She talked about what it meant to African-American students, some of whom spent most of the year at predominantly white schools. This was their moment of the entire year to be around their own people and just have fun right and enjoy the same music the same
1: kind of you know cultural activity the all of that and that is i think a legacy we should be proud of in helping to to create that venue
0: what were the first freak nick events in atlanta like
1: i mean from from my understanding and the people that we've spoken to it really was a simple picnic and it was around spring break and you know, one of the interesting things is you can't really ever p- put a pin on exactly what it was like because everybody has their own sort of different truth as to when exactly it started or what it was like. You'll, ha- you'll have people in the pod saying like, oh, I was there at the first one in 85 or no, I was 82 and it was started by these people and this happened, this happened. And to me, that's one of like the most interesting things about it. Um, is that you know? Who's to say? I mean, everyone has their own truth, so no one's really lying. The first freak nick is the first Freaknik for, you know, the the person who experienced it. There's there's this air of mystery about the celebration, which I think is something that makes it really special. Um, but from to answer your question, from what I understand, it was a simple barbecue, and people have told me many different parks in Atlanta where that barbecue existed, but it just, from my understanding and from the research that we've done, it's just, it started small and just, you know, as things do, just blew up and blew up and blew up. Moved around town, um, different parks, and kind of, you know, reached its, you know, zenith, as we know, in 93, 94.
0: Right. So so it was you're speaking to like the organic nature of it, how it got pieced together and brought people eventually from all over the country to the South and exposed them to music coming out of the South. Outcast, right. the Dungeon Family, Goody Mob, T. I. These get known to the Atlanta club scene, but hardly outside of that. So you talked to a number of musicians who were there in those early years. How did they remember that part of it?
1: You know, during that time period there was like the east west coast type hip hop thing in the South I think was misrepresented um, or underrepresented rather. This event sort of in the early nineties provided space for all of these guys to kind of come together and uh, to speak to the organic nature of everything is like kids from all over the country were coming down. So you could come from Memphis, you could come from Florida, you could, you know, be an Atlanta native and you have this sort of organic space in which all these kids are going to hear things they hadn't heard before and in turn. Eventually, they took that music back to, you know, Ohio State University or Seattle, Washington, or New York, for that matter. You know, it speaks to the nature of Freak kicking in and of itself, to, to your point. It's just this really organic, shared experience
0: and it became a place for people to launch things and for music companies record companies BET started broadcasting live from Freaknik here's Luther Campbell's 1993 hit work it out and the beginning of the video alludes to freaknik oh,
1: sweetheart, let me take you to the wildest
0: freakiest
1: party in the whole world wow.
0: How did this change the image of Atlanta on the national scene and the national music scene? I mean, a lot of people still were looking at the South as bumpkins at that point.
1: That's one of the reasons why I first was introduced to Organized Noise and Outcast and started like hearing about Luke and Three Six Mafia and things of that nature because I had not experienced that before. And I think really it's one of like a prime one of the prime reasons why You know, Atlanta is known for what it is today as it relates to music because it just became this place where everything was coming out of.
0: And the South had something to say.
1: The South had something to say.
0: So by the 90s, hundreds of thousands of people started coming to Atlanta. As I said, you know, music companies, television shows broadcasting from Freaknik. And many Atlanta residents started complaining about spontaneous parties just popping off in parking lots and neighborhoods and famously across highways. Uh, Some cases, police were closing on and off ramps. You talked about that with the rapper and producer Too Short. Here's what he remembers.
1: I remember Freaknik seeing this white lady in traffic. At, at times you would get stuck in traffic and it would be like whatever's going on up there, they're not moving. Like you're gonna sit here for 45 minutes without moving one inch, you're not moving. And I remember that lady talking on the cell phone in her car and she had the most fearful look on her face. Like it was like if you threw her in the lions, like like on a safari or something and she's no longer in the vehicle. And I, I felt her too, I'm like, I get it. She made a wrong turn and ended up in Freaknik. <laughs>
0: That episode was called The Abominable Indiscretions of Youth, and it goes on to talk about the city letting black people hold Freaknik, which was sprawling all over the city. It's this kind of racialized nature of the response, something that came up in MTV's 1998 episode of Real Life. This is from Freaknik. the
1: average Joe Smith sat at home, when they see this, all they think, the Freaknik is bad, The girl getting raped and people doing drugs. That ain't it. You know what I mean? It's about black people coming together and uniting, and just sharing love. If they decide to smoke weed, they want to smoke weed. If they want to drink, they want to drink. You know what I mean? Yeah, man, Mark, ain't nothing but love. Ain't nothing but love. But every time all y'all want to do is show people getting arrested or have one incident when somebody get in trouble. It ain't about that.
0: So what we hear is white people scared, African-Americans. This is a triumph of expression. Is that too simple a breakdown?
1: No, I mean, to be honest, one of the, like, one of the main reasons that we embarked on this process is just this story of, I was talking to, I live in Brooklyn, I was talking to this girl at a bar who was a white girl from Atlanta, and I knew that she had, like, progressive parents, and we just started chatting about what her parents experienced during that time, and so I had this idea of, like, oh, I want to go interview a bunch of white people just to understand their... Sort of perceptions of Freaknik. So, that, I mean, that's a very basic genesis of the project. And then also, I was sort of inspired by, you know, the opening of of Tom Wolfe's The Man in Full, really describes that same thing from from a middle class black perspective. So those ideas, and so when Short says that, like that he gets it. It's like I could understand that too, and I wanted to get a better understanding of that as part and parcel of this sort of larger look at the history of Freaknik in Atlanta.
0: My guest is the documentary filmmaker Chris Frierson, creator and host of Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. They are three episodes now into an eight episode run, if I got that right. Yes, ma'am. Well so you are a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker primarily. Why was a podcast the medium for telling this story?
1: Yeah, I don't I don't really know. It it just the opportunity sort of arose. Um initially I was thinking about a documentary project, and then I realized that I really love podcasts. And I love the sort of in- investigative journalism type approach. Um, and then a really simple answer is it's cheaper. Um, but I also was like, I kind of, I do want to make a film eventually. And I thought that this was, this would be a great way to, you know, get a piece of work out there and figure out, you know, if there is something to do in the future, um, which is not to say that this is, I don't think this thing is dope. I just, I was thinking about it kind of both ways.
0: One side of that is that the city response after attendees broke 100,000 in 1993, the number doubled in 1994, uh, crackdown, businesses and hotels started closing the door to participants, some lawsuits, hundreds of arrests. And maybe most damaging, MTV aired a video, a special on Freaknik showing women getting groped. Uh, in dancing circles, attacked in cars, and sometimes worse. And then in 2010, the former Atlanta mayor, Kasim Reed, said, Freaknik activities no longer allowed in Atlanta. What did people that you spoke to say about that crackdown?
1: I think, collectively, the impression that I got was this idea of Atlanta being a city that has always had a very careful, cultivated image that it wanted to broadcast to the nation and, and later the world, as it as it grew, um, and I think that Freaknik, you know, going back to the fifties, from you know, city too busy to hate to, you know, just making sure that it, it, it saw itself as somewhere that was different than um, other places in the south. And I think that Freaknik is something that threatened that image. I think that those sort of pictures of a, you know, to be very basic of black people run amok in a major, you know, metropolis, you know, threaten that. One of the first things I ever saw, I remember when I was a kid, was there was a convention, and I think it was in 95, it was a computer convention. And so on paper, there couldn't be any two groups of people that were different. And I think that that became a problem. Like Short said earlier, it's like, I can see both sides of that thing.
0: And that was also, of course, 95 is when, you know, the Olympics were set to come to Atlanta. It was the city going to be on a world stage. I want to pick up on your title of the podcast, "A Discourse on a Paradise Lost. And if you pick up that illusion, you know, time before the fall, and importantly, before everybody had a camera or social media to spread these images. So for you, what, what was that paradise and what was lost?
1: To me, that's one of the most beautiful things about Freaknik. It's like, I don't think it could ever happen again. I know they just did uh, like a music festival recently, but back then no one had cameras. No one could share where their friends were at, you know, where you were at. No one could Instagram. People were not concerned about the sort of instant gratification that everybody is today. It was more about going someplace. You don't know what's going to happen. But you do know that you're probably gonna meet somebody and have fun, meet new friends, and have wild stories that you can go back and embellish, you know, word of mouth. Just the idea of just going and getting good and lost for a while is is tremendously interesting to me. Bun told me the story where he he just got out in traffic, he hadn't been to Atlanta, and just walked to his hotel and had no idea where it was had to call his partner Pimpsey's mom to tell her where on the landline to be like, oh, we're at the hotel, this hotel. It's just this idea of it's a a kind of a freedom that we don't have anymore because we're all tethered to devices and, and everybody knowing what's going on at every time.
0: Well, the freaknik that reemerged this summer. You, in fact, you interview Luther Uncle Luke Campbell before the revival in June. This was at the Solaris Amphitheater in Lakewood. It was kind of billed as a family-friendly event. Should freaknik and family-friendly exist in the same sentence?
1: Naturally, not not really. I mean, you don't think of you know MTV Spring Break. You know, associate that with family-friendly. It's a it's a different thing. It's a different animal. I. I I think it's just using a title to you know, to put more butts in the seat, so to speak.
0: Yeah, so it's a brand now. Yeah. How did it go, do you know? Is it I mean, is it possible to replicate that past, that sprawling, you know, walk through the hotel and there's a party kind of feeling?
1: I don't think you can't do that in in an amphitheater, you know. I'm sure it was a great concert. They had a they had a a great lineup, but I don't think people were going back in 93 just to see Luke or music. They were going to just have an experience. And so an undefined experience whereas a concert I believe is a fairly defined experience.
0: So what's the legacy of Freaknik? This apocryphal paradise of freedom.
1: I don't know, I think that's what we're trying to to sort of explore. I th- I think that the legacy is, you know, people will tell you it was a beautiful thing that ended up going bad, and I can see that. Um, I just think it was a moment in time that, like I said, can never be replicated, and something really special for Black people. You know, there's other celebrations, Black Bike Week, and there's been other things, but there's never been one that was as important, I think, to the country as this, because of the musical stuff, because of, you know, its roots in the AUC and HBCUs, I think that this, particular celebration was um just unlike anything else
0: well chris farson thank you so much for taking a break from making the podcast to speak with us
1: thank you so much
0: And we will leave you with Play-A-Poncho's What's Up, What's Up produced in the middle of Freaknik festivities in 1995 as we say goodbye to Chris Frierson a documentary filmmaker and creator and host of Freaknik a discourse on a paradise lost Well, what about you? Did you live in Atlanta during Freaknik? Were you drawn here for Freaknik? Or were you scared away? Did Freaknik become racialized or was it in its very inception? You can let us know on our Facebook group. We're at GPB Radios on Second Thought on Facebook or at Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us on second thought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404 500 9457 This is on Second Thought. Stay with us for a look at the economics of solar installations in Georgia. When on Second Thought continues.